You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Reverend Megan Pardue, lead pastor of Refuge Church in Durham, North Carolina. You can check them out at refugehomechurch.org. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bolajak, and I'm here with my guest, Megan Pardue. Megan is the lead pastor at Refuge Church in Durham, North Carolina. Say hello. Hello. It's great to be here. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene um, at Beaverton Nazarene, which is this really funny-shaped building that is very memorable. It's a round church. Um, in Beaverton, Oregon. And it's actually the church that my parents um, met Jesus at Mm -hmm. in their early 20s. So it's a pretty incredible thing. We talk so much about we, I guess we being people in the church, about how people leave the church when they're in their, you know, go to college or in their early 20s. And that's the time my parents came into the church. Um, And they're married in that church. and, And that's the church that I was licensed in and raised in. Wow, that's awesome. So how did, kind of talk to me about your call. How did you end up wanting to be a pastor? Well, people experience their call in so many different ways. Um, for me, it wasn't one moment where it was completely clear, but a series of instances in which I really sensed to God speaking to me and leading me into this life. Um, a couple of poignant moments. One was the morning after my winter formal, <laughs> my sophomore year of high school. <laughs> it's very memorable because I still had like the version of the updo that I had had from the night right, before. Right, right. And my youth pastor um, basically said to me, like, you have committed to being on the youth council. You have to come to this Saturday morning event at our church, um, which I had a really bad attitude about. Um, so anyway, I went to the Saturday morning event. There was a missionary speaking. I literally cannot tell you a single thing about what he said, except that he must have been in a Muslim country because I remember there was a mosque projected on the screen. Mm. Anyway, I I literally, this shows you how the spirit works. I literally fell asleep during the sermon in the back row and woke up somewhere during the altar call time. <laughs> And felt very heavily on my heart um, that I had to go forward and Mm. pray at the altar. And I did. And all I remember God saying to me then was, like, be open. Um, Be open to what I have for you. Which I think was the beginning um, at this pretty young age, in my sophomore year of high school, of a, a long journey of instances where those moments became clearer and clearer that this was what God was calling me into. Mm. Um, Another really, really important time was a mission trip I took to Los Angeles with this organization. I don't know if they're still working, but they're called Center for Student Mission. And they really, I think, do a lot, approach missions, at least at the time, so many years ago now, um, approach missions with teenagers as a lot of education and exposure so let's just go be in these places where people are, you know, perhaps stealing drugs in the edges of the park, or let's go be in these spaces where organizations are doing um, work in the inner city. And that experience was 
just a place I, I met Jesus in mm. a way that I had never before. Um, I felt so alive that week and just knew like I have to be, I have to be doing something that, that these people are doing. Like I have to be about this. So that kind of continued on and then um, um, felt really affirmed and encouraged along the way with some really great mentors and had good opportunities, I think, in college to test the waters of pastoral ministry and do a a good bit of preaching, which I really love. Um, After college, didn't really feel ready to go either right to work in the church or right to seminary, and I knew that I really wanted to, to do seminary. Um, so my husband Keith and I spent a year in South Korea teaching English. Um, we were not missionaries. We were just trying to make some money and pay off some debt. <laughs> um, and that was a great adventure. And then came back and went to seminary at Duke uh, Divinity School, which is in Durham, where I still live. How did you end up at Duke? Well, there's a lot to that story. I guess there were a lot of things going on. Um One, I would read these books that were assigned to us at SNU, (laughs) and then I would look at the back cover, you know, where it has, like, the three-sentence or two-sentence bio of the author, and it would be, like, Stanley Hauerwas, comma, such-and-such professor at Duke Divinity School, you know. That happened, like, several times, and I kind of realized, huh, Well, I could go to NTS, which is a a great place and doing amazing work, Um, and I could probably read more of the books by these people, or maybe I could try to go, like, take class with them in Mm. person. Um, So that was a real pull to do for me. Um, And then another pull was I kind of wanted to try something different, and I think actually being outside of the Nazarene Seminary was really pivotal for me in leaning into my identity as a Nazarene pastor in a way that I hadn't before, um, learning things I really loved about our church, and and then also gleaning things from other traditions that are really beautiful and important and, and things people are doing really well. So it kind of helped me step back and evaluate like that this is the church I wanted to be in mm-hmm. um, and actually really brought me to a, a place of affirming that, yes, this is where I want to be mm-hmm. um, as opposed to you know, wanting to pull me away. So I ended up at Duke and I had a really, really great experience in seminary. My two closest friends were United Methodist and they're both United Methodist pastors now. And they joked with me about how much better my Bible knowledge was because I was a Nazarene. (laughs) And so the joke was like, while Megan was in Sunday school learning about the Bible or doing cuisine, like we were doing arts and crafts, um, which is like a terrible, like, that is that says nothing about all United Methodists. This is really my two closest friends um, who would tease me about that. So it was a, that was a kind of fun, like really concrete thing I can remember of feeling really good. Like my Nazarene church and SNU really prepared me well for for Duke with my knowledge of scripture. I love that. So you're at Duke, yes, learning from all these these guys. And um, how did you end up at Refuge? Well. Um, Refuge was, uh, Refuge was, is a church that meets in people's homes every Sunday, so there's no building, um, and not only do we meet in homes, but we meet in different homes, so we're actually moving from week to week, Mm. and the pastor of Refuge, when I started seminary, was 
a man named Todd Mayberry, who is uh, was at the time working or an ordained Nazarene elder and then also working full time at Duke Divinity School as the registrar. So he was fully bivocational. Mm. Um, so I'd met Todd and um, he'd invited Keith and I to come to refuge and we had gone to some other churches still and we're kind of like, oh, that sounds a little strange. Um, going to someone's house. Not really sure about that. And then this other random connection. Um, we were at the basketball camp out, which is like how you sleep in a parking lot for 36 hours in order to get basketball tickets. Because <laughs> okay. Duke basketball is a really big thing. And there uh, met through somebody else, like another um, Nazarene guy who was a third year at MDiv student at the time. And he and his girlfriend, his girlfriend had just moved here and they were looking to find a church together. And mm. he's like, you know, we've gone a couple of Sundays to this refuge, to refuge, like this church. It's really interesting. Like you should come check it out. Um, and we we're like, okay. And then later, like Keith, my husband had bumped into, um, Rachel at, at Starbucks of all places. And she's like, okay, seriously, you really should come. So we came and, the infamous sermon series was going on at the time called Money, Sex, and Power. Oh. And we came on Sunday two of sex. And <laughs> okay. literally, like, our experience, and this is, I'm so glad now that I'm a pastor of refuge that I can share this experience that I was able to have it too, of this, like, pulling up and parking in front of a house mm. that you've never been to, where you don't know who lives there, and you are here for church and you're like, I think this is it. Like, this is the address that I have in the email. Um, so we're just kind of like, okay. And walked up to the door and knocked and, you know, went in and we're just like, they had dinner and then we didn't bring anything, but that was totally okay. And we ate dinner together. And then, um, the sermon was this like really interactive conversation and people were sharing like lots of opinions and Keith at the time didn't have a job yet. So we just moved to the area like maybe six or eight weeks before, and he left like with like two contacts of people who might have had jobs at like mm. their workplaces, and um, and we literally got in the car and he said, "This is it, like this is this is it," um, and we've gone ever since. And now I'm the pastor. So there you go. So tell me that story. How did you how did you end up being the pastor there? So our former pastor Todd, he told me, I guess in the fall of my final year of seminary. So, you know, graduating in May, like this was, I guess, September, October. Um, he told me that God was calling me to be the next pastor of refuge. And he told you that he told me that. Yes. Um, to which I said, uh, I don't think so. Um, which there were, I think a lot of really good reasons for listen to me defending myself against God's calling. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, there were some reasons for that that made sense to me, at least. Um, Keith was trying to get into school, and we'd been here in Durham for three years and, like, have no family in this area. Or this is a totally different part of the country than we grew up. Like, are we really going to stay here? Um, mm. He hadn't, he was trying to get into nursing school, and so we were kind of, like, wanted to be – I wanted to be mobile for, for him since he had been mobile for me. So not mm. wanting to commit to, like, being in this particular location. Sure. Um, and then also, I really didn't feel like I wanted to do the fully bivocational thing. Mm. 
in the sense, and it, I mean, I say this like knowing that there are so many people out there who do it um, and do it so faithfully and you just amaze me. You just amaze me. Um, and at the time, Refuge had never paid a pastor at all. Wow. It had been just like totally run on Todd's, um, the offering of his time. And then on also on a lot of, you know, collaboration with people volunteering and making things happen. And I just didn't really feel like I wanted that whole life of doing another whole job um, and doing church. I really wanted to to be um, in a church where I could give more of my time than just like what was extra. Sure. Um, so I didn't really foresee that Refuge would necessarily want to make that transition since um, since they had, you know, been able to be church without a, a paid pastor or a pastor that was uh, more committed in that way um, or that they were more committed to in that way. And Todd just thought these were not obstacles that he took, listened to them, um, but <laughs> just continued to like pray for me and with me and you know, he had another whole bunch of other come to Jesus moments in his office mm. about this. I got all the way to July, like fighting this. So we're looking at like September to July where I had graduated already, didn't have a job. I was doing a CPE internship at the VA hospital. CPE is clinical pastoral education. So mm. one unit of that, the VA hospital, which is like basically full-time volunteer work, but it gets you a good certificate. Um and finally, Todd was like, you know, this is still an option that I think maybe maybe you should come back to. So I had in a one-week time, I started writing a list of people who in some way or another like offered affirmation that refuge was where God was leading me, um, including people that I did not expect to hear it from. I mean, one heart-to-heart with a close friend in the VA cafeteria where she prayed for me there um as if i was the pastor of refuge already wow um and then some i mean another like sit down with a pastor and a a nazarene pastor in a couple towns over who basically was like why aren't you doing something at refuge like why Mm -hmm. isn't this you know your next thing after seminary um and then that same week um todd got a call to go to another church and keith got into nursing school at duke so um, can you tell us about that kind of transition for the church, bringing the church along with um, the transition that you were talking about from not paying a pastor to paying a pastor? Yeah, totally. So thankfully, um, Todd really led that transition. And we actually, he and I together, or just him, like met with each person or family in the congregation to like talk about what it might be like for him to leave and then for me to fill that role. And it was just amazing, like, how everyone was already there. Mm. Um, And so it was this kind of, like, unanimous, like, bringing me on and offering support and then also, like, you know, saying goodbye to Todd and his family as they went on to another church. So I... I really, like, couldn't have imagined the transition going any better. Um, it is different to become the pastor of a church where everyone already knows you. Mm-hmm. Like, I I know that there's a, a pressure. I hear this from other pastors to, like, keep some of the things that you maybe think or feel or some of your convictions, like, on the down low until they, like, know you and trust you. 
I did not have that experience at all right, <laughs> because right. I was fully open about, you know, my thoughts about things or convictions um, before and they already really knew me really, really well. And so <laughs> it was very much like, you know what you're getting uh, with Megan being your pastor. So that's awesome. Can you tell us what what refuge is like? What? Yeah. You know? So refuge um, meets on Sundays from four to six, which is the time, at least in that early evening window we have always met then from since the beginning before I was around um we meet in people's homes and our worship time is bookended by the table hmm. so we begin by coming to the table at dinner together which is usually a type of potluck meal um the host individual or family will generally cook the main dish and then people will kind of bring sides and fill out the rest of the table so we spend the first, like, 45, 50 minutes to an hour eating a meal together. Um, and I really try to use language that shows that that is a part of worship. Mm-hmm. So from the moment we gather, like, worship has begun. Um, so then when we transition to actually gathering, like, all together in one room, typically, like, the living room or in the summer we meet in the park a lot, Um I try to say, let's gather, as mm. opposed to, like, let's get started, because mm. I really do think it's so important that the meal is absolutely a part of worship and important in the ways that all of the other elements are. So eat dinner together for the first 45, 50 minutes. It's totally chaotic. There's, like, children everywhere, <laughs> and <laughs> it's, yeah, it's totally chaotic and really wonderful. Um, it's a great time to have a conversation and catch up. Um you know, hear where people are at and just be together. And then we gather in the living room and worship includes like usually a children's psalm is read from this book of children's psalms, just kind of taking the psalms and putting them into language that a first grader can read. Hmm. Um, We'll read that. We'll sing a song. We have a couple of prayers that we pray each Sunday. So one is a prayer for Dana, who's a missionary from our church who's serving in Nigeria. So we, we take really seriously our commitment to her. So we pray for her every single Sunday. Um, and then we also have what we call the refuge common prayer, which is a kind of function of, um, things that we feel like God has led us to saying like, these are some of the mission of our church, or these are the things we feel like God is leading us into. So we pray each Sunday, for example, um, the last three lines of the prayer are give us the ears to hear the cries of the oppressed, the eyes to see the needs of the poor and the voices to speak with the marginalized. Mm. So every Sunday we're being reminded in worship that these are the things God's called us to be and we're praying this prayer like not having always lived into them, um, which reminds us reminds me of that prayer from, I guess, the Book of Common Prayer, forgive us for the things we've done and the things we've left undone. Mm. I feel a lot of connection there. Um, so we'll pray and then the children will typically leave and go into another room or outside for their own lesson and playtime. Um, and then we'll have the sermon, which it includes conversation and reading of scripture and that'll last for 30, 40 minutes. And then the kids come back in and we always pass the peace and we always take communion. So that's absolutely a part of, of worship and it's pretty incredible especially seeing it, seeing children being formed in our church, um, the ways that they know, like, what peace is about. They know mm-hmm. to say peace, and they know, like, you know, when I give my child, for example, who's one and a half, like, a snack, right, she puts it right in her mouth, 
but not at communion Hmm. because she knows that she takes the bread and then holds on to it until she can dip it in the cup. Like, to see the ways that our kids are formed, and they actually call communion, they call it the peace. Hmm. So these two things are so closely tied together. Um, And then a benediction, and we go on our way. Hmm. So how do people find the, the refuge? So refuge, okay, formed in 2007 um, and was entirely word of mouth with only an email list until 2013 wow. when we did the very 21st century thing of getting a website. <laughs> um, but literally, we have like one family in our church who are regular attenders who found us through the web. That's it. Like, wow. And we occasionally, we have visitors every once in a while from the website, but really it is through word of mouth and through our weekly email. Mm-hmm. So I have, like, when I sent out the weekly email last night, there are 88 people on the list. And so people kind of get on the list and then maybe they'll unsubscribe if they find another church home or leave the area. Or some people stay on the list, like my mom. She's Aww. on the email list because she's like, I know how to pray for you. Um, then she knows, like, what, the, you know, what we're preaching about or what announcements there are and stuff. So it's kind of cool. Um, so it's a great way for people to stay connected. So often if I'll meet somebody um, who's interested in coming, like I'll give them my card or mm. um, I'll try to get their email because then I'm like, you really can find us like this way. Right. So what is a what is a typical week like as the senior pastor, as the lead pastor, as the only pastor, I guess, of, of refuge? Yeah. So we do have um, two associate pastors, okay. but they're serving in other jobs as well. So okay. they're just volunteering and volunteer their time so graciously. That's awesome. And they're both ordained. One week ago Wow. Praise be to God. Um, one of the most incredible moments of my ministry to be able to be the one to pray mm. over them. Um, both incredible people, Duke Divinity grads as well. That's awesome. Um, so what is a typical week? It is so inconsistent. <laughs> I mean, I think it's consistent – and that, I, you know, you always got to be ready for Sunday. Um, sure. Sunday always comes, as they told us in preaching class, and then we're not lying. Um, so, you know, every week, of course, includes, like, preparation for worship on Sunday, um, sermon study and writing and doing all that. Um, but then, like, who I'm meeting with or what I'm doing will change um, from week to week. So... Maybe I have lunch with somebody or pick up a couple of our, you know, middle schoolers from school and spend an hour with them. Um, Or we have a couple of different ministries that the church is involved in. So one of them is called Circles of Support, where we're walking alongside a formerly homeless household um, to support them for a year, just literally like as they're trying to maintain housing and... um, as most of you probably know, like once you've been homeless, your chances of being homeless again are extremely high. So that is like a week, a weeknight kind of meeting, mm-hmm. um, getting together. And then there's some community stuff that I'm involved with. So I regularly attend like one meeting a month that's hosted by an organization called the Religious Coalition. So they are basically bringing together community leaders and a lot of them faith leaders um, to have conversations about what's going on in our city and then also it's very empowering for me as a pastor because each month a different organization is presenting like Mm. what they do. Mm. So it's a kind of like 12 times a year I'm learning about the resources in my community that then I can be, you know, referring people to. That's great. 
Um, so, I mean, every week I think is different. And then stuff comes up as stuff comes up and I just try to show up and be present. So a mm-hmm. lot of that's not predictable. Tell me about the tension between um, people who can host a Sunday for refuge and people who can't. I know you've talked a little bit about that in the past, and I'm just curious if you can talk to us about wrestling with that. Yeah, I think that is certainly one of the greatest challenges of meeting homes, if not the greatest challenge. Um, There is a power dynamic there that just, like, has to be named. Mm. Um, And in particular in this last year, as we've really consistently been just about at capacity in Mm. people's homes, um, making sure, like, that our growing church isn't then even cutting out more people who could host before, but then, like, maybe can't accommodate, like, this size of group. Um. I don't have, like, an answer I can give you other than to say that it's something that we wrestle with, and it requires a lot of intentionality, I think, on the parts of our, of really our whole community to say, like, that hosting, yes, is a gift that, that you can share of hospitality, but that there's other gifts of hospitality that we can Mm. also be sharing and also be receiving, So you may not be able to host, but perhaps you can bring something to dinner. Or maybe you can't host or you can't bring something to dinner, um, but you're sharing with us some of your gifts or, you know, your company, um, your children, like that our community is better because you're sharing of yourself, not just of what you have materially. Um, I don't know. I don't have an answer for this. And I, this is one of those questions that I struggle with and that, mm. you know, I lose sleep over. Um, but I feel like, at least for our church, and I think this would be true for others, the tensions around hosting and sharing your home outweigh the things we would lose if we weren't in homes. Mm. So... For example, um, if you go visit, let's just say like, you know, a, a brick and mortar building that's being used on Sundays. Sure. Um, you know, one, there's just like a huge portion of our population who has no interest in walking in the door. So I think we got to own that, first of all. Um, and and then also, you know, maybe you go in and let's say service starts at 10 and you get there at like 10.05 and then you leave at 11 And you've maybe talked to, like, two people, um, which might have included, like, shaking hands while you get your bulletin. Um, It takes effort to extend, like, the connection on Sunday morning beyond that. And we have great ways to do that, right? We have small groups. We have, like, ministries, outreach, whatever. We have great ways to do that. But that has to be so intentional through, like, a planned coffee hour or – and then, like, what if someone doesn't stay, like – when you show up at someone's house for dinner, you are in their space. Like, you just bypass, like, so much of the stuff that takes, for some people, months, years to get invited over to someone's house for church, mm. after church or before church or for dinner one night that week. Like, you're in their space. You're seeing how they spend their money. Mm. Um, you're seeing how they 
live? Like what's important to them? What are their values? And then you're sharing of yourself in a way that's pretty vulnerable too, because like, what if you break something? Or what if my toddler knocks something over and, you know, or stains your carpet? Like, Mm. um, there's this kind of mess that being in someone's home just like takes away a lot of the distance that I think we have from one another. Mm. So we're just starting from a point of um, more, I think, more connection, more vulnerability, um, more community after, you know, literally like having dinner with someone for 45 minutes. You're going to know a lot more about them, a lot more about what's going on in their week, um, where they're at, what they're struggling with, like what's bringing them joy. Another way that we wrestle with the tension around who can host and who can't host, um, whose homes we go into and, and whose homes we don't, is by going into the homes of our incarcerated brothers um, who are living and working and locked up at Bunner Federal Prison, mm. which is only about 25 minutes from Central Durham. We go there for church uh, four times a year to this place that something like 2,500 inmates call home of this particular part of the facility. That's not even like the total number of inmates there. So we go for worship, um, join them at their church, um, the Butner Church, and really experience God in ways that I struggle to describe. I'll never forget my first time going to, to worship at Butner we took communion, and this since this last time we were there, four years later, I was able to preside over communion for the first time, which was so incredible. Um, but I got in line for communion, and all of these things about who Jesus was and is became so clear to me in a way that they hadn't before. Here I am lined up with all these men in tan going forward to take the body and blood of Christ. Mm. Our Lord, who was accused of crimes he didn't commit, arrested, put on trial, locked up, and then sentenced to the death penalty. Here I am standing in line to take this body and blood with all of these brothers who understand Jesus in a way that I never will. Mm. I mean, you open scripture in that space and you realize, wait, Paul wrote this letter when? When he was (laughs) locked up? Or I often preach from the lectionary when we're there. And in January, the scripture was Luke 4, Jesus' first sermon. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, release of the captives. How do you preach that in prison? How do I say that, that, that Jesus comes to release prisoners when I'm going to go home and they're going to still be there? Um, it's... It's such important relationships. We go back to the same facility with the same guys over and over again. And one of them called me on the phone last week, somebody who's been finally released after 17 years. And to think that he felt 
like a part of our church that when he was out, he's already in another state, but that when he got out, he wanted to call um, and connect with refuge. Mm. Just really, really incredible. How did that get started? Well, our former pastor, um, his wife worked with the wife of the chaplain at Butner, who we still work with, a great guy named Luke. Um, And he allowed us to come one Sunday and participate in worship. And we try to really think of that as just going to be with. We do provide some leadership to the service. Um, Generally, I preach and we'll have a couple of people read scripture or something. But that's really just to support the chaplaincy staff. I mean, we would be happy to go. and, um, And we even have done it before where... I haven't preached. We've just gone to like really be a part of the service um, to be with them. And so many of the people that are coming from refuge aren't participating in service. They're really just coming to, I mean, they're participating. They're not providing leadership. So they're really just coming to, to be with and to visit and to say, you know, hello. And I remember you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you're here and I'll see you again. I mean, it was like a unanimous, like, I have to be in the space again mm-hmm. for those that went. And, um, and so we never stopped going. That was in 2011. And do these worship experiences happen instead of having house church that week? Yeah, because that's the home we're meeting in. Mm. It's not an appendage, uh, kind of thing. It's something that, like, our regular service is canceled because church is at Butner. Um, that's what we're meeting that particular night. And they actually meet, like, almost at the same time as us. So... They meet on Sunday evening, so it's a really, like, natural kind of fit in the rhythm of our worshiping life. That's great. And how, how has your congregation responded to that? Um, I mean, those that come, and not everyone comes, and that's okay, um, but those that come, come so faithfully, and it's really cool that different people that come have, you know, the same people that they'll talk to every time, so... Mm that they have these connections and these relationships and um, people that they check in with and people that they look forward to seeing. And it's, I mean, I think it's really important to all of us because that space informs so many of the other things that we do. And it's, it's a kind of, can be a regular part of, for example, from a preaching perspective of preaching, like who are we remembering when we hear things like, you know, the, the oppressed and the marginalized, like, we actually have names. Those aren't like just broad categories. I mean, these are people that we know and, and love and um, who, you know, some of them have made mistakes and others are just victims of a really, really broken system that would rather lock people in cages than restore them to full humanity. Mm. I know you're really passionate about your preaching style and kind of how your style has evolved in the context of refuge. And I was just wondering if you can you can kind of tell us about that. Yeah, well, I guess first I would say that I love preaching altogether. Um, the it's probably the part of the office of pastor that I feel like the most alive when I'm doing. Mm. Um, and, and I think that I had really great people who said like, yes, you should do this or, you know, encourage me along the way. Um, I think I preached my first sermon my senior year of high school and I just basically like 
felt like God gave me a sermon mm. when I was getting ready for school, and then I went to a Christian school, and then I went and told my principal that I, that God gave me a sermon, and that I needed to preach it at our fall retreat. And he was kind of like, so tell me about it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> let me, let me like try to clear this a little bit. Sure. Um, and then, you know, at SNU too, had great encouragement and preaching from Dr. Green and others. Um, so we really do love preaching. And so then what does that mean for refuge when I love preaching in a pulpit? I love preaching in the kind of traditional way where you step up there and like read scripture and then deliver this like crafted um, message from the Lord and then like pray that it's faithful to what God has spoken to that week. I love that. So then what does it mean to love preaching that's really, really different from that? Um, Completely different, in fact. When I preach at Refuge, I am not standing up. That, for one, is a really big contrast in itself from preaching um, in a traditional context. I'm sitting down. I'm usually like holding a cup of coffee. I don't have a lectern or a pulpit. Um, I'll have like a page or two of notes on my lap. Um, It's really, really different. And so pastoring refuge has kind of forced me to reimagine what preaching is and, and to not only reimagine it, but, um, it's, I guess I've used this word a few times now. It's kind of empowered me to like see what I'm doing there as preaching. Mm. So where some people might think of, oh, if you're having a conversation in someone's home, like that's a small group or like that's a Bible study. Well, okay, yes, that is the context in which that those things normally happen. Um, but a sermon is making a proclamation and that is what is happening at refuge each week, even if it's happening in conversation. Mm. So then it's, it's kind of came from like, this almost insecurity, like, since I love to preach so much, but now I'm pastoring this church where do I really have a chance to preach? And then it's like, oh, wait, yes, I do. I do it every single week. And I'm preparing a sermon almost identically mm. to how I would prepare a sermon in if I were preaching from a pulpit standing up, except when it gets to, like, the writing piece. I generally do actually, like, write, you know, um, more of a manuscript. And I do not do that at Refuge. I write notes. So all the way up until the writing part, it, it is the same. And then it changes in how do I engage then the congregation in the preaching moment? So three kind of things I think that conversational preaching does that I'm learning. Um, one, and something that's extremely important to Refuge as our identity and as a faith community, is preaching in conversation makes space for questions. Mm. So... If you don't agree with something that the preacher says, you can interrupt um, and you can ask or you can ask for clarification. Like imagine as preachers that we might not always communicate, that someone else might not understand our ideas exactly how we present them. Um, It's almost like a trial and error. Like, oh, that didn't make sense. I've just heard that it didn't make sense. Let me try again, (laughs) you know. Um, In the preaching moment. Yeah, in the preaching moment. So, But it also makes space for questions that come from – (sighs) doubt Mm. that come from like I don't know about this um that's okay yeah and that is a central piece of our identity at refuge Mm -hmm. um a lot of people that attend refuge have left the church or have a lot of questions or I mean our name comes from refuge like a place of healing 
a place of safety. Mm. So having a conversational sermon is intended to like bring about some of that safety to Mm. struggle. You do not have to sign on to like, here's what I believe to show up on Sunday. It's a place to to be and to struggle. So on the one hand, um, it makes space for interruption or question. Another thing that I think it does is, which this is very much coming out of our Nazarene tradition, it makes space for testimony Mm. or witness. So as opposed to the preacher being the one who is presenting ideas and then maybe trying to see in the sermon, right, where do we show how this is at work? Like, where do we show how God is at work? The sermon actually invites people into that process to give testimony to where it is that God is working or moving, the ways in which their own lives are being transformed, um, the ways that they see God at work in the world, and they're invited into that testimony in the sermon moment. Mm. Um, I'm preaching right now through, I can always only give examples from like the current sermon series I'm in because I just feel like I can't remember farther back from that. it's okay. So I'm currently preaching through each line of the Lord's Prayer. So, the Sunday on Thy Kingdom Come, I mean, I preached, like, laid out some stuff, um, struggled, and and this was the same Sunday as Orlando happened. Um, And the amazing thing about a sermon series like this is, like, you've already decided on what you're preaching on, like, so many weeks before, so you're just like, okay, Lord, Thy Kingdom Come is the Sunday for, as we experience this great tragedy in our country. Um, so the sermon made space for people to name where they feel like God's kingdom is not coming. Mm. Like if it's already, but not yet, where's the not yet? Like, where do you see that? And so people named things that were really hard Mm. and things from maybe like the broader, news and world um and also things like well my friend was diagnosed with cancer a couple of weeks ago also things that are super close to home I just I can't even tell you like the holiness of that space to be able to say like God here's where we see that your kingdom is not yet here but then (laughs) Where do we see thy kingdom come, the kingdom that is already here? And then people give testimony to these places where there's this like absolutely tangible realness of God's kingdom. Um, you know, one person shared like, I, I watched uh, a husband and wife having a conversation um, this is a person that works in the hospital, you know, having a conversation uh, about her her imminent death. Mm. And they laughed. Mm. Like, thy kingdom come. Like, here are these two people who believe that death does not have the final word. Mm. Um, so so the sermon makes space, I think, for for testimony. The third thing that it does, and it does a bunch of things, but these are the three that I've come to in the last, like, couple weeks. <laughs> Somebody else asked me to articulate this a couple of weeks ago, and oh, I kind of came up with three. Great. So the third is 
and who knows, maybe I'll disagree with myself two weeks from now. I don't know. Um, the third thing is the conversational sermon makes space for real-time integration of the word. Hmm. So if a sermon generally on Sunday is like preached and then maybe you kind of go home with it and then you yourself or hopefully in community, but I don't, I don't often think it actually happens in community. You're supposed to be like integrating, right? To some extent, like through the work of the spirit, like what the preach word is doing in your life, like Mm. how it's changing you, Mm. um, how it's sanctifying you. The conversational sermon has space to invite people to name or imagine like where it is that the spirit is working in that moment. So it's kind of like, let's put this out there. This is God's word for us this week. Um, Almost like, what are you going to do with it? And it's not necessarily that question, but it makes space for people to actually say aloud in almost a way that brings about accountability wow, this is really resonating with me with this thing that I have going on in my life. Like, perhaps, like, God is inviting me to think about myself mm. in this way. Mm. Um, and and then saying them aloud, I mean, it's almost a form of confession, right? And so then confession, this really ancient practice of the church that is still a part of a lot of liturgies, not really in our own tradition, Now we have a role of almost confession and commitment in the same moment. Mm. Um, So it's this kind of real-time integration of how is God speaking and how how is what God is speaking about um, actually going to bring me to to change. That's awesome. So I know you're working on a project. Yes. Um, with a few other people, and I was just curious if you can kind of tell us, like, what's happening and what, what we can look forward to from you. And Yes. So I'm working on a book project with uh, Nazarene Publishing House and some really great people. Um, I definitely want to give credit to the project creator, Josh Broward, who's a pastor in Indiana, and he co-pastors with one of the other authors, um, Greg Arthur, and then also the general superintendent emeritus, Jess Minendorf. Um, and myself, we're together writing a book, and the working title of the book is Edison Churches. We will let you know if that is the title, and I'm sh- hopefully you will find out if sure. it is or isn't. Um, but that's the working title, and it's really in its beginning stages. But what the book is trying to do is work from the premise of, since people don't go to church, like, let's not say, stop saying, like, if. Like, let's say, because people don't go to church... As opposed to just harping on that and, like, the kind of negativity about that and, like, whether we need to own that we failed or whether we're just, like, whining about it, this book is trying to say, what are people actually doing? Hmm. Um, Where is it that churches are innovating? That they're being creative? That they're saying, huh, well, since this isn't working, let's do something totally different. Let's actually stop worrying about all the people that have left our church and just get to know all of our neighbors. Or in the case of, you know, Refuge, which is one of the churches that will be profiled, like, what if we didn't have all of the stress of maintaining a building Mm. and had it be this kind of paralyzing commitment? 
what if we just like threw that out and that wasn't even on the table? How could we do church in a way that is all of the things I've already described and even more? Um, something we've recently talked about at Refuge is the way that our environmental impact is different because we're not heating and cooling a space every week. Like these are spaces that are already heated and cooled um, or in the park, like literally no resources are being used for us meeting there other than getting transported there ourselves. So so these are churches that are innovating, they're being creative, they're doing things that are totally outside the box or really missional. And we're writing 10 chapters about them. Mm-hmm. So each chapter will be a different congregation. Actually, that's not right. We're writing 13 chapters about them. Is that right? 10 or 13? I should know that. I know I'm writing four. So let's stick with that. Um, profiling different churches. Some of them are Nazarenes. Some of them are not. I would say that you probably haven't heard of most of them, which I think is really amazing. Like, let's highlight these people that we can learn from that aren't getting attention in other places um, and learn from them. So it really, to me, is a book about innovation and a book about learning and and hopefully a book that will really inspire. Um, Someone can say, like, what we're doing, you know, I was just at District Assembly, which is a place that I'm reminded of things that are working and things that aren't if we just tell the truth about that. And, you know, see some pastors that are really, really heartbroken and discouraged because the things that they've always done aren't working anymore. Mm. So since we know that, what can we do? When I imagine the church in Acts, how was it that this, like, bunch of nobodies who followed somebody from Nazareth, you know, literally changed the course of history in a matter of a couple of hundred years well they showed up first of all for each other and for their neighbors and they did things that maybe hadn't been done before Hmm. um instead of going to temple they you know met in people's homes um instead of leaving town when the plague hit they stuck around that speaks a lot of volumes um, so I, I like to think of the parallels between what some of these really incredible churches are doing and the church in Acts, because I think for so many of them, their work is, is so incredibly biblical and, and it's not necessarily new. Mm. I want to emphasize that. Like it's not n- what's new and cutting edge. I think that that can be really temporary. Um, but innovating is, you know, kind of changing, transforming, remaking, things that have been done to be things that will share share Jesus um, with people that haven't been a part of church before. Mm, I'm looking forward to that. It's hopefully will be out next summer, so. And we'll have a title that will be decided on by that point. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your experience as a woman in ministry and maybe yes. maybe more specifically as, as a woman in the church, the Nazarene um, in ministry. If you have a a story that kind of encapsulates that or if there's something that you talk about when you talk about being female and and a senior pastor? Yeah, well, I guess I would say um, first that I am incredibly blessed to pastor a congregation where I do not feel like my gender is a problem or a challenge in fact, I would I feel so comfortable saying like it's a non-issue 
like I cannot think of a single instance um, in which it has posed a challenge that um, a male pastor wouldn't have had. Mm. I take that really, I just want to say to my sisters out there, like I know that that is not all of your experiences. And I want to say that, one, to thank my own congregation, but also to give you hope that there are places where that's not the case. Mm. Um, A lot of that is because I'm pastoring a church that's only eight years old. And so it's full of people that haven't necessarily been raised in the church. And, and I haven't had to like do convincing or changing minds, like to say like a woman should be able to do this. It was just already the assumption that of course, um, where I feel more of attention as a female pastor is certainly in the church of Nazarene as a whole, which is crazy because we have affirmed women from the beginning. I mean, if you think about the fact that before I could vote as a citizen of the United States of America, I could be ordained an elder as a minister of the gospel. That's progressive, which is probably a conversation for a different day. (laughs) But it is something that I cling to, Mm. to say like, okay, maybe we have completely dropped the ball on this and we need to repent of a lot of sin that has said you're in and you're out as our institution, um, and own the ways that the powers and principalities have taken over um, our process of not just ordination, because I actually think we're doing better, really well with that, but mostly with hiring, with getting women jobs. Mm. Um, So I I sense the tensions at the denominational level as I see my sister's struggle. Um, When I go to district assembly... And someone from headquarters, let me emphasize, not my DS, who is just being so, so proactively encouraging of Mm. both female clergy on our district and minority pastors. Um, But when someone from headquarters says, I was at the pastors and wives retreat, Mm. I'm like, okay, I've only been here an hour and I already am told that I'm not included. Also, not only am I not included, but also my husband, who's a pastor's husband, yeah, he's not included either. Oof. So that it that makes it really hard not to be cynical mm. because we're not even trying with our language. Mm. I mean, let's let's at least try with our language. Let's say, okay, we're not hiring women as senior pastors, but let's at least like say he or she um, may come and pastor our church. So I think the language is one place that I get really frustrated and I just want to see more effort. Like, it's just not acceptable. So where I don't have the kind of day-to-day um, pressure that so many other women have, I, I do feel the tension on the denominational front. And there's days I feel super encouraged. Um, and And then there's days I'm like, wow, how have we lost what was so important to us a mm. hundred years ago? Mm. I don't know. I've heard a lot of, I've heard from other females on the district that you really encourage females and especially just younger ministers in general to be involved on a district level. I am encouraging to younger pastors to get involved with district things just 
because like it's a chance for us to have voices at the table and I feel really encouraged to I feel encouraged to encourage them because of our DS which is making spaces for for people like if you're willing to show up you have a seat Mm. which is not the case on every district Mm. and so I feel really encouraged um, because of Dr. Mason in that regard um can you speak to kind of what he does that is um, providing space for young pastors? Yeah. So for myself, for example, like he um, he got here in October. One of the first, not this October, a few years, like maybe two or three years ago now. Um, and so one of his first like big events or maybe the first big event on the whole district was like our annual Christmas dinner. Mm. And, you know, he asked two people to pray at the dinner and I was one of them and the other one was a Hispanic pastor. Wow. So just the fact that he uh, knows (laughs) that maybe since primarily our elected district leadership is falling into a demographic that is primarily white, male, and over 50, um, let me make sure I'm making other opportunities for our other pastors to be seen Mm. and heard. Mm. Um, another thing that he's done, which has been so great, is some districts still do, like, the pastor's report where you report on your church, um, which is just, like, really long. And I don't – I can't really tell in two minutes the ways that God has been working or the challenges I've had. I need, like, to have coffee with you. Sure. <laughs> and sit down for an hour. So the pastor's reports, I think, were generally, like, not the best use of our time. So he just stopped them. And instead, we have these panel discussions in front mm. of the whole assembly And it's amazing. I mean, he brings up – so, like, last year I was on a panel of clergy women, and the question he asked me was, how can the North Carolina district better support our female pastors? In which case I immediately started with the language thing, like, let's start by calling pastors he or she. Um, That's a big deal, not just for me to feel included, but for all of the young women who God is calling who have never in their lives heard that a pastor could be he or she. Um, So he makes space for that. And then – you know, bringing together um, other groups of people, like a a panel of chaplains, a panel of new church starts. Mm. So you're hearing from all these different pastors the work that they're doing, the challenges that they're facing. This year, I was on a panel about home churches. So I'm not the only one on our district. There's actually two other house churches. And so the three of us were asked questions about what does worship look like? What does ministry look like? What does outreach look like? Um... So that is an, a really concrete way that I think we're using our time at assembly so much better because mm. um, we're hearing from these broader spectrums of people as opposed to just getting in our geographical regions and talking for two minutes. So really showing up has been a huge part of it. Um, and then trying to strengthen also the connection between Duke Divinity School and the North Carolina district. So um, we have at Duke Divinity School the Nazarene House of Studies which is an unofficial club. In order for it to be official, we'd have to have a faculty member that's Nazarene. So if any of you are out there, there's some openings at Duke and homiletics coming up. So (laughs) please consider applying. Anyway, the Nazarene House of Studies at Duke Divinity School is, you know, a group of students who are licensed Nazarene ministers mostly or somewhere in the ordination process who want to stay connected. Um... And for the last two, not this assembly, but the two previous, you know, our DS had the Nazarene House of Studies serve communion. Mm. So, I mean, it's really just like getting 
younger clergy in front of the district and saying like, hey, they're around too. Um, and literally even like, I'm, I may not agree with everything that they say, but I want to be where they are. I want to listen to them. I want to learn from them. And, and then the thing I'd say to the whole church is like, and then let's give them some jobs. Love that. So the last question I ask everyone is what inspires you to stay in the church, the Nazarene? What keeps you here? So I think asking me this question this week, um, what keeps me here is a dinner I had a week ago today, since I just had assembly, that's where my mind is at, um, at the Panera Bread, close to the church assembly was at, full of pastors that I feel, for lack of a better word, are like my people. Mm. Um, pastors who... Yeah, are like mostly younger, maybe. I mean, under 40-ish, not all of them. Um, But people I feel safe with, people that aren't posturing, people that are honest about the things that they are not on board with, um, and people that I feel like are incredible encouragers of me and others. Um, Just sitting around with this group of people like, you know, one friend is a senior pastor. Um, one friend is, or a couple of friends are senior pastors. One is um, a prison chaplain. Um, one is pastoring in the inner city or, you know, with some staff that are incredible. Um, just like that group of people. And then these two people that were just ordained from refuge. Um, these are people that I trust and I love and And I feel like they love our church, Mm. like I love our church, that they are Wesleyan, (laughs) that they believe that God is always moving towards us, Um, that they believe that to be Nazarene is to try to be in spaces Jesus would be in. Um, Brzee said so famously, the field of labor to which we are called are the neglected quarters of the city and wherever else may be found laid waste souls seeking pardon and cleansing from sin. Um, These are people that know that that is really messy. Mm. Like I would say like our founders knew Um, that that field of labor is (laughs) not, does not have it all together. (laughs) Um, And that's okay. And And these are people that I think believe in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And and they're pastors that I would trust to be my pastor. Mm. And I want to be here because they're here. And I want to be here for them in the way that they're here for me. Mm. Um, This is is my church. This is my home. I do have hope. And sometimes it comes in huge ocean waves. Sometimes in like little droplets of rain that I could barely collect in a bucket. But this is this is my church and this is where God's called me to be. If somebody had a question for you or they want to get in touch about refuge or being a woman pastor, or being a senior pastor, where can they get a hold of you? Um, my email. And let me just say that of my... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> gifts of ministry. Follow through is not really high on my list. So if you do email me and you don't hear back right away, please, I, I am begging you, just send it again. I will not be offended. Like, I'm, I'm just going to say sorry now. Um, but my email is my first and last name, MeganPardue at gmail.com. I'd be happy for you to reach out to me there. If you message me on Facebook, I will probably not respond. I literally just figured out how to get messages on my phone. It's great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This is a great conversation. Good to reconnect with you.